1: Let me kick this one off with a question. How do you feel about scotch? In the spirits and cocktail world, it's one of the most beloved yet polarizing spirits. And with hundreds of years of accumulated tradition, regulation, and competition, the scotch whiskey landscape is as fascinating today as it's ever been. Our interview guest, Adam Safir, is a scotch expert with a passion for whiskeys produced on a tiny island called. Isla, and he kindly agreed to take me on a liquid tour of some of the finest drams hailing from that briny, smoky place. But with a voyage like this in front of us, I think it would be appropriate for you, before we embark, to outfit yourself with a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Bobby Burns, named after the 18th century Scottish poet Robert Burns. To make this cocktail, you'll need two ounces of Scotch whiskey blended is traditional but i like to use a single malt when it's feasible one ounce of sweet vermouth and one bar spoon of benedictine combine all these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice stir until everything's well chilled and appropriately diluted and then garnish with a lemon twist some recipes even call for the drink to be accompanied by a biscuit or in u.s english a cookie Now, there's a couple important things to keep in mind for this drink, and the first is a simple analogy. The Bobby Burns cocktail is to the Rob Roy as the Vu Carre is to the Manhattan. What do I mean by that? Well, the Rob Roy is a Manhattan cocktail that uses scotch as a base instead of bourbon or rye whiskey, otherwise it's pretty much identical. So it's easy to compare those two cocktails. The Vukare is basically just a Manhattan dressed up with the addition of Benedictine. And here we see the comparison to the Bobby Burns. The longer you spend working with cocktails, the more you'll start making these little connections and use them as templates by which to create and categorize other drinks. The other thing I wanted to mention about the Bobby Burns cocktail is that there's widespread disagreement on the internet about what the ratios for this drink should be. So I stuck with a classic Manhattan ratio. Some recipes call for equal parts, scotch and sweet vermouth. Some call for up to half ounce of Benedictine and some call for only a few dashes. Since this drink is plenty sweet, I recommend using just a bar spoon of Benedictine. First, because it makes that expensive bottle last longer, and second, because I can't really think of anyone I know who keeps Benedictine in a Dasher bottle in their home bar. So, now that you've got a regionally appropriate cocktail to keep you warm during this episode, let's pack our bags for Isla. In part one of this in-depth interview and scotch tasting with Adam Safir of the DC Isla Scotch Society, some of the topics we discuss include how Adam fell in love with Scotch and what drove him to really dive deep into this particular region. All about whiskey societies, including how to find a group to join in your area. How Scotch whiskies produced on Isla traditionally differ in style from those made in other famous regions like the Highlands or Speyside, for example. Some important definitions for terms like malting and peat and an examination of the role that terroir plays in peated malts, how to think about technical terms like phenol parts per million or PPM, a tasting of several impressive Isla Scotch expressions, and much, much more. This interview is a really, really thorough crash course. One of the things I enjoyed about recording it is that I was in the presence of both a true enthusiast and a true authority on Isla Scotch. And sometimes you talk with someone and you get the sense that they're trying to sell you on a particular view or opinion. But Adam is the kind of gracious guide who presents a really well-balanced and thorough rundown of this category so that you, the listener, can make up your own mind. Please do head over to the show notes page for this episode over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast, where you can find pictures and details of all the spirits we taste through during this two-part interview. And of course, if you have any questions, you can send us a quick email to podcast at modernbarcart.com. With that, I am so, so ridiculously pleased to present part one of my Isla Tasting and Conversation with Adam Safir of the DC Isla Scotch Society. Adam, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. So today we're speaking with Adam Safir of the DC... Isla Scotch Society. But before we get into what that is and what it's all about, and before we taste these delicious whiskeys here, can you just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about you and who you are and what you're all about?
0: Sure. So my name is Adam Safir. I'm a statistician in the federal government. And my area of focus is on the measurement of consumer expenditures. And so, of course, expenditures on whiskey and whiskey prices in general are of natural interest to me, whether you're talking about at the bar, by the bottle, or uh, on the secondary market. I like data and details and the story that those things tell. And so, of course, whiskey fits into that realm perfectly. I would call myself a whiskey enthusiast. So in other words, I'm enthusiastic about whiskey, but not necessarily an expert or a connoisseur or even a whiskey geek, although there are some people who would call me that last one.
1: I mean, you're wearing a Vendome still T-shirt right
0: now. I I, I am, and I'm glad <laughs> you noticed. This was actually one of the highlights of a recent trip to Louisville, Kentucky. That oh, was sweet. And uh, yeah, so we one night we just drove by in the dark to the Vendome factory, which is just sitting right there, nondescript. It was pretty neat, uh, and they had a whole parking lot full of stills and. Apparatus and other pieces of equipment that are just lying around ready to be used. Wow. So it's pretty neat
1: So tell me a little bit about the DC Isle of Scotch Society how that I guess community works and um, The kinds of events that you put
0: on sure so I think the the Isle of Scotch Society and and other clubs like it are a really interesting phenomenon that are supported by The internet, obviously, 20, 30 years ago, you might not have had this kind of scene, uh, or it might have been organized quite differently. So the Isle of Scotch Society is a social club of roughly 350 members. Uh, We have about 50 or so active members who come to one of the five or six tastings that we have throughout the year. So our tastings are primarily home-based, so they'll be organized around a theme, and folks will bring a bottle around that theme. So we have one coming up, actually, tomorrow night, which is called the Isla DNA test. And the idea is, is that some people feel that there's a certain DNA to different distilleries, and that regardless of the expression that that distillery puts out, Samaroli, which is not a distillery, but is a good example where some people feel that Samaroli expressions have a certain DNA, Laphroaig, uh, Lagavulin, etc. And so the idea is, is to put together a series of bottles from the eight active distilleries on Isla, taste them blind in groups of four and evaluate our own ability to detect was that an bag, regardless of whether it was sherry matured or bourbon matured or whether it had manzanilla or whether it had something else. Is that a Lagavulin regardless of whether it was PX, etc.
1: Sure. And it's interesting too because I think you could go either way on that, right? There's obviously like a microbiome that develops in a distillery. Fermentation is obviously, you know the first and most crucial, not most crucial step, but one of the most crucial steps in giving a whiskey its particular fingerprint. And so I think you could certainly say that, you know, there's there's some sort of DNA going there because there's a microbiome that has developed inside these buildings and facilities. On the other hand, the question of if, if it's possible to identify that is like so
0: stimulating, right? It, it is, and we've done this before. We did an Ardbeg blind tasting, and we had about 10 expressions, and we had people who came into that blind tasting knowing for sure they'd be able to pick out Ardbeg 10 or Ardbeg ugadal or Ardbeg Cory or any of the core expressions, and most people were 1 for 10, 2 for 10 at most, with the second one being a guess. It's really really difficult. And it's something that we'll get into later about what draws people to whiskey or what draws people to scotch. But to me, that's something really compelling about it, that no matter how much you think you know a particular expression, there's always batch variation. There's always differences that you're not going to pick out without the label and new things that you find that you didn't expect.
1: Right. And so there's a couple of reasons why I'm really excited for this conversation and the, the tasting that we have associated with it, because I think On the outside, if you were just a person on the street who didn't have any particular affinity or knowledge base about Scotch in general or about Isla Scotch in particular, they might take a look at this episode and say, like, "Eh, that's got to be about the most specialized kind of like unique niche thing in the world. And yet here you are with a community of anywhere from 50 to 350 people who are really diving deep and not just diving deep and hitting the bottom but diving deep and realizing they don't know as much as maybe they thought they knew. Oh sure. So I think what that tells me is that this is like a really rich ground for discussion just so that our our listeners can learn the basics and not only that, but we've got this whole kind of regional and historical ethos that Scotch brings with it that I think sure. is really interesting to me. And I'm sure that you'll be able to, to share some some really compelling details about all of that as well. Can you just give folks, we'll, we'll, we'll let you at the end of the interview, like throw out all the social media handles and stuff, but can you just tell folks how you got introduced to the DC Isle of Scotch Society or maybe some of the other groups that you're a part of and maybe how they might go about doing the same, whether they're here in the DC area or if they're in some other part of the country.
0: Sure. So 10 years ago, the way to get in was Facebook. Uh, All these groups were organized on Facebook. They had Facebook groups associated with them. And what would happen, what happened with me in particular was I, you know, I was searching for more information about uh, this hobby that I really enjoyed and about whiskey in general. And so I looked on Facebook and found this group and joined the group and they had tastings. And so I went there's the, I mentioned the Bethesda Single Malt Society, it's a similar situation where it's close by, it makes things a little bit more accessible. Nowadays, I you know, Facebook is still obviously a factor, but Reddit is a big medium that people gather on to talk about whiskey and to organize tastings and that sort of thing. There's also a pretty, and, and we may talk about this a little bit later as well, but there's a pretty heavy whiskey footprint in D.C., particularly when you mention Jack Rose and some of the other um, establishments that we have here, that you really just need to walk into one time and start talking to somebody and Things will start connecting.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting that there's there's digital ways to do it, but then there's also you know kind of like brick and mortar institutions where if you're not somebody who is comfortable like joining the the whiskey subreddit and then you know interfacing with a bunch of faceless people, you can just walk up to the bartender at Jack Rose and enjoy a flight and uh, you know bring your little tasting journal and, and write your notes and you're bound to meet somebody who's there doing the same thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I will say. You know, there's this notion that 60 to 80% of the variation in whiskey is explained by the wood. So, you know, you have your yeast, you have your water, you have your distillation, you have your cuts, you have all of that. But at the end of the day, it's the wood that really sort of drives everything. And to me, that's sort of an anomaly for the whiskey spirit experience in general, where by and large, most of the other people that I've met through the whiskey scene there's been heavy, heavy overlap of other interests. But the reason I connected with them was whiskey. And so there's something about whiskey that goes beyond the taste, that goes beyond the experience, that draws a certain type of person and they'll find commonalities with other people in that in that scene. Yeah, totally, I couldn't
1: agree more. I mean, it's why I do what I do, yeah. uh, why I'm so happy that we live in a city where there's so many Excellent local distillers actually doing good things building interesting barrel programs, especially in the case of like one eight. right? But yeah, so so can you tell us how You fell in love with I guess maybe you can go either scotch in general or Isla scotch in particular because you know th- Talking about you know, there's a, a specific kind of person who might gravitate toward whiskey as as a spirit What's your your love story because everybody seems to have one?
0: well Sure. I have, uh, you know, there's a lot of little stories. I, I certainly, I, I think it took several years for me to, to kind of come around and say, you know, I really love scotch. But there was a love at first sight moment, or at least a meet cute. And it's, it starts sort of, so I had to kind of take a step back what I would consider the typical high school and college experience with alcohol, where I, I drank mostly beer and, and Jaeger probably, and, and probably some tequila. And uh, I had one purpose, and it wasn't taste. So that was kind of, that was one sort of element. And then after college, I sort of left it all behind and got involved in work and family and and these other things. The first time I remember being really intrigued by whiskey was during a beach trip when two friends brought whiskey. And one brought a liter of Johnny Walker red and one brought a fifth of Johnny Walker blue. And the guy with the blue walks into the room, takes one look at the red and says, okay, Who's the schmuck that brought the red? And I was so interested in, what does that, what do the colors mean? What is this all about? Why? There's already this sort of hierarchy, uh, one, one color's looking down on the other. And so I wanted to learn more. And then the love at first sight moment, I would say involved Lagavulin and a dimly lit bar. And I was with friends and um, it's it's a drink. Lagavulin is, is a peated whiskey from Isla that in my opinion, the nose and the flavor profile heavily revolves around smoke. So to me, it doesn't have some of the more heavy, intense medicinal or iodine qualities that you might find in a Laphroaig or in an Ardbeg or even in a Kilhoman. But there was something about that sort of ashiness and that smoke that really, really kind of grabbed me right away. And so from there, I began to seek out similar whiskies. Highland Park 12, I think is a classic example of a whiskey that people will mention as, wow, the first time I had that, I was blown away. Mm. And from there, those are little stepping stones to kind of getting to the other side of the river and really kind of immersing yourself in, in, in finding those areas of scotch or whiskey or whatever that you really enjoy and the ones that you don't enjoy so much and beginning to develop your palate.
1: Sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of learning that has to take place with that, right? Like one, one example, one perfect example for, for folks who are not um, necessarily familiar with whiskey and the w- terminology, like you just said Highland Park 12, which the 12 refers to how many years it was aged, sure. right? So even that, even just learning that or the right. difference between Johnny Walker red and blue. Right, right, you know, right, it's, right. It's kind of important. I mean, it's definitely part of the journey. Yeah. But what I was going to ask, you know, in, as a follow-up to your, uh, your story about this this first Isla Scotch that really kind of walked up to you and grabbed you by the lapels is. Would there be any way for you to give kind of like a thirty thousand foot summary of where Isla fits in relation to the other Scotch regions? Sure. Um, sure. Just because I think, it, like, it's so unique and it's so special, I just think it's worth maybe spending a little bit of time on like that aspect of scotch so that people can understand, I guess, the size of the core sample that, w- that we're going to be tasting through in, in a couple minutes here?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I guess w- one thing to, to really appreciate about whiskey, about all distilled spirits in general, is that, for lack of a better term, they're, they're sort of a, condu- a conduit to culture in the sense that, you know, they have a very strong connection to a place and a people, whether you're talking about Bourbon or mezcal or, or scotch or rum, for example, and with Scotland in general, it has this sort of—I don't—I don't know how old you are, but you know, for me, when I was young, I saw Highlander. Yeah, uh, I right. remember Duncan <laughs> MacLeod, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, this this is a movie that really romanticizes, you know, that kind of. Um, that kind of image of Scotland as this swashbuckling sort of place with swords and and dragons and and magic and and that kind of thing, and so that naturally pulls you. Isla, in particular, is one of the let's say five regions of of Scotch whiskey. But aside from Campbellton, which is you know such a sliver, and there's I think there's only three distilleries two or three, there. Three, yeah, yeah, um, and two of them are actually part of the same you know group. If you're talking about Glen Gile and 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 Springbank. But, you know, Isla is... So, first of all, in terms of size, it's 240 square acres, something like that. So, what is Montgomery County? 500? Yeah. Right? So, this is a place that's half the size of Montgomery County. And at one time, they had, I think, almost 30 distilleries there that were all, you know, top-notch distilleries. Now, they have eight. So, how many kingdoms are there in Game of Thrones? I think there's seven, right? Right. So, it, you know, it's an easy number to grab a hold of, and you can easily sort of start to begin to form kind of associations with the eight different distilleries that are on Isla. In terms of how it compares to the other regions, you know, you have Highland, which is kind of a big stretch and includes some of the fruitier whiskies and, and some, some of the, you know, they have sort of kind of a mix. The, the lowland whiskeys uh, tend to be much lighter in body, and so they're, they're a little less uh, demonstrative in terms of their personality. Speyside is actually part of the Highlands, mm-hmm. and it, uh, you know, organized around the River Spey. And it has, I, I guess, the most distilleries of all the regions, something like 50 or more, concentrated in, in, in a relatively small area. The whiskeys from Speyside tend to be matured in sherry mm-hmm. barrels, I would say, more, more often than not. But ultimately, and I think this is something important for people to realize, is that the regions are kind of an entryway, cognitively, for folks to get into whiskey. And they're useful from a marketing standpoint. But there are distilleries in Speyside that make great peated whiskies, And there are distilleries on Isla that make great unpeated whiskies. And so, yes, peat is associated with Isla. And yes, Isla is associated with peat and with a maritime saltiness and, and all that goes with it, but I would use the regions as shorthand while acknowledging how short the hand is. Right.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think a really good resource for folks, this is in reference to a recent interview I did with Pedro Shanahan over of the Spirit Guide podcast based out of the Seven Grand in L.A., they have a lot of these brand reps that that come in. And I I really highly endorse that as a really good resource for folks who are looking to learn a little bit more about whiskey terminology. But that's one of the first things that a lot of these folks acknowledge is how kind of existent these boundaries are, but also how permeable they are and how much conversation is occurring between these different regions because they definitely all have the one or two things or traits that they're known for. And yet in today's kind of, atmosphere where distilleries are really looking to differentiate themselves and push the limits, Right. a lot of that limit pushing ends up being kind of in the form of experimenting with stuff that folks are doing in the next region over that maybe wasn't so popular in your region for the past 300 years. But hey, we got to experiment. We need to innovate. Let's, let's mess around with
0: it. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So can you tell us a little bit more about these distilleries that are on Isla and uh, maybe maybe talk a little bit about those those two kind of key features, right? The the peat sure. and the, the maritime, I guess climate. We can use those as a way to jump into the tasting and, and get some some actual flavor notes on the board.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so to rattle off the list of the Isla distilleries, you've got Ardbeg, you've got Kulila, you've got Beaumont, and Brooklatty, Kilhoman. Uh, you've got Lagavulin, Laphroaig uh, of those Ardbeg the, the south coast distilleries tend to be a little bit heavier on the peat so you know your Laphroaig, your Lagavulin, your your Ardbeg, your Ardbeg the so-called Kil Dalton distilleries the the bees tend to be a little less heavy on the peat so you'll have your Bruichladdie and your Bowmore uh, and your Bunnahabain that aren't as heavily peated Kilhoman is a fairly recent entry into the game. I think their distillery kicked off in 2005 and was the first new distillery either on Isla or even on the mainland, I think, in in quite some time. And they've been doing great, great work. They're also, you know, they they do a peated spirit. Most of the distilleries on Isla get their malt from one source, which is Port Ellen Maltings. And so that as an ingredient to the final product, there is some uniformity there. But within that, you know, every distillery does it differently, uh, even, even you know, copying each other and borrowing ideas. So you'll have Brooklady and you'll have Kilhoman and you'll have Laphroaig that still do some, Laphroaig still does some floor maltings and I think Kilhoman does as well. But then you have Kulila that is sort of known as kind of like the factory workhorse of Isla. And they do, I want to say, 3 million liters a year is their production capacity. So huge in comparison to like a Kilhoman, which thanks to Impex, we see everywhere in the D.C. region and thankful for that. But I think their production capacity is around 200,000 liters. So, you know, quite a difference. But Kulila is heavily computerized and heavily mechanized. And so where Brooklady might employ 100 people from the island working in their distillery in the so-called old ways, you have Kulila, which I don't know how many staff they have, but maybe working with 10 or 20 total and everything else is mechanized. What happens that is interesting to me is that they take the spirit that they distill and then they ship it in tanker trucks to the mainland to be aged, barreled and aged, and then bottled. So you have a distillery, not on Isla, but like a Talisker. Their slogan is made by the sea. Hmm. And they do make it by the sea. Talisker is on sky, of course, and it's beautiful, yes. and there's cliffs and waves in the ocean. But then they take their spirit and they age it on the mainland. Sure. So it's it's not aged by the sea. And this whole notion, I think you've gotten into the notion of terroir in the past in terms of what really, is, what really does terroir comprise. For me, it's peat. Peat is what drives that sort of notion of providence in that standpoint because you have peat that is kind of the interaction and the intersection of the soil and the air and the salinity in the air and, mm-hmm. and the topography of the landscape, what it is that's decomposing into that vegetal matter, that is all what makes up the peat. And so you'll have a distillery like Brooklotti, for example, which is very islocentric, and they do everything in so-called the right way, but they send all their barley to be malted at Bairds of Inverness on the mainland. So they're growing barley and they put out a spirit that's labeled Isla barley, but it's being malted on the mainland. And so that's kind of like a short circuit, in my opinion, in that, in that Isla-centric process.
1: Sure. Yeah. And to zoom out just a little bit, you mentioned barley being malted and then a process called floor malting just to kind of give folks an idea of what that means basically when you make a single malt scotch it, it's made with barley there can be other grains you know sometimes there are other grains added in sure. occasionally like grain whiskies but barley is particularly difficult because it's got a lot of starches but not a whole lot of sugar so we need to kind of kickstart that process of the starches turning into sugar. So we trick the barley into thinking, hey, it's time for you to turn from a seed into a little plant. And it goes, okay. I'll start making some energy for that plant. And then in order to stop it from going all the way and turning into a plant, which is not good for fermentation, they kind of pause that in this floor malting process, right?
0: Right. So can you
1: explain like what that looks like and and where that falls in the the Scotch tradition? And and I guess, you know, you said, you you mentioned that the fact that Riclati ships that off and kind of uh, outsources that. Is a bit of a short circuit for you, so maybe if you explain the process a little bit, and then folks can kind of understand why that is and, and follow your logic a little bit.
0: Yeah, so I, you know, I, I think the process is fascinating, and it, it encompasses you know all aspects of science and 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 you, you know this romantic notion of farmers and everything else. So they they start with the barley and they grow the barley. They take the barley and they mill it so that it it can be mashed. You get the husk off, essentially. You get the husk off, uh, right? Right. You get the husk off. So the the germination process, as you mentioned, is to produce that starch that can then be turned into sugar, which can then be turned into alcohol. So on Isla and in other areas of Scotland, there, the heat source traditionally had always been these peat bricks. And so peat, again, is this decomposed vegetal matter uh, that has decomposed over centuries. It takes a long time, but it's also fairly plentiful. And it's very sensitive in terms of its makeup to its surrounding environs. And so some peat is made up more heavily of dead animals than other peat, which is made up more heavily of, for example, on uh, Orkney, which is where one of the peat bogs is, that peat tends uh, tends to have a heavier component of heather, so decomposed heather. And so that lends a flavor to it. So when the distilleries are germinating the barley and it's growing starch, they need to arrest the process before the barley itself starts to consume that starch. And so they arrest it, heat, fire, smoke. And with peat, they'll take the bricks of peat that have been dried out, and they'll use that underneath the distillery or to the side of the distillery, fire it up, and smoke the uh, germinating barley to arrest that that process of germination. Uh, And then they take that and they they mill it up. But the length of time that the barley is dried with the peat, the type of peat that's used, the intensity of the smoke, all those factors come into play when you start thinking about what peat adds to the flavor profile of a whiskey. And earlier you mentioned PPM. So PPM Mm. is phenol parts per million. And it is measured generally in two spots. One is the malt PPM and one is the new make PPM. And so what everyone has been doing, and there's been a little bit of a PPM war, I think over the last 10 years, particularly with the Octomore series, but, but with other whiskies as well, is that the higher, the better, or the higher, the stronger, or the higher, the more intense. And so you'll measure phenol parts per million at the malt stage of Anywhere from, one, from zero to five, and that'll generally be considered unpeated. Uh, heavily peated is roughly 40 parts per million. And so that's most of the distilleries on Isla uh, have at least one or more expressions that are in that range. Uh, and then you'll have your super peated, which is, you know, 100 and above, you know, parts per million. So you have, for example, here we have an octamore that we might taste later that has a PPM of 167. The problem that you get into is that depending on the height of the still and what ethanol compounds are getting over the neck and and, and into the condenser and depending on how the distillery approaches their cuts and so they have their heads and their hearts and their tails and how long is their foreshot and how deep into the tail do they go, all that makes a difference in terms of what peat adds to the final spirit, which is then, of course, redistilled uh, in the spirit still. Then it's aged for you know however many years in the wood. And so ultimately, you know what, what piece of the puzzle did that really play? But people get fixated on peat. I, I love peat. When we taste the Lagavulin, to me, there's a heavy smoke component that comes off it of that I absolutely love. But Lagavulin is probably, I don't have my notes in front of me, but I would guess it's about 40 ppm at the at the malt stage yep to me it tastes peatier than something like an octamore which is 167 Mm. and the reason for that is because of the type of peat used I, i don't i know brook Lottie. i think they source uh, a lot of their peat from the mainland. I don't know how much of their peat is actually from Isla, so that plays a role. Uh, they have two peated expressions. One is the Port Charlotte line, and one is the Octmore line, and they may use different peat sources for that. I, I don't have a Highland Park 12 here, but I mentioned that before. The peat signature on in the Highland Park series in general is very interesting and different than the peat signature from Isla. It's, as I mentioned, it's, so we talk about notes in whiskey. Yeah. Uh, it's more, there's more heather in it. Yeah. What is a heathery note? I don't know, but I know it when I see it.
1: Right. Something green, right. This is where you, you know, it's not like, it's not like you sit there and sniff something like, oh, that's heather. That's totally, (laughs) but like you get like, you know, maybe a tinge of greenness or like more of those kind of like fragrant plant compounds as opposed to like the, the heavier, smokier, ashier stuff that you were talking about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if you, um, if we, we go up and we, come down south a little bit to Edgerdauer Distillery, which puts out a... So a lot of distilleries, what they'll do is they'll put out a line for their peated expressions. So Brooklady, as I mentioned, their peated line is Port Charlotte and Octomore. The Springbank puts out Longrow as their peated expression, Mm -hmm. or their peated line. Edgerdauer puts out a Balcon Uh, expression, a line that is peated and is absolutely fantastic. But it's a very different type of peat than the peat you'll find on Isla or the peat that you'll find on Orkney. It comes from one of the peat bogs on the mainland itself. And it has a very, the note I get off of it is burnt rubber, or sort of if you went into a physical arcade when you were a kid uh, and there was that plasticine sort of like plastic new toy smell. Mm-hmm. That's what I get off of Edge of 10, which is a, just a really interesting note. And, and so, so different from the Islas, even though it's it's also Pete.
1: Right. And I, I love what you were saying about parts per million and how, you know, when you compare like this octomor, this this something that has been ramped up, And then measured to this like super high intensity, and yet still the Highland Park, you say you get a little bit more of that smoky peaty characteristic from it. So, you know, if I were listening to you speak about things like phenol parts per million as an outsider... I'd be like, what is this guy talking about? Like, could I care less about this? Right. But but then when you were like, yeah, but sometimes the number doesn't match the experience. I'm like, ah, wow. That's like, that to me is the hook that turns you from somebody who has like a book knowledge or maybe an experiential knowledge of something to somebody who's hunting for something. Because I feel like that moment that you realize that the Octomore to you was somewhat less smoky or peaty. Uh, or differently than, than something else is like, Oh damn, no, there's, there's room for kind of conversation here. And that's the conversation between expressions that I find so interesting. And I have a feeling that's what keeps you and you know, all the other folks in your whiskey societies coming back because you can talk for hours about this stuff. Sure. And it's just so interesting.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think you're always surprised. There are some, there are some things that you can depend on. When I, open up an Art bag 10 or a Lagavulin 16 or any number of expressions there, I will find what I'm looking for in terms of a set series of notes that I remember from that particular batch, bottle, or, or barrel. But you're always sort of surprised by something. And, mm-hmm. and that's why blind tastings are, are very appealing to me and many others because when you strip away the label and when you strip away... Everything that's been downloaded to you about what something should taste like right. and what your expectations are and what the price tag was and all those other things, and you close your eyes and you just focus on your nose and your palate and the finish and what it says to you, oftentimes you'll find things that are completely surprising in a, in a very positive way. Yeah. So that's an experience of whiskey that I think is what lends itself to the tasting culture. where whiskey is not just somebody at home drinking a bottle. It can be but it's a more social experience of people comparing notes.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, I think this is a good point to kind of like transition into our tasting. And I definitely, I wanted to talk a little bit about more of this kind of the production and aging nuances, but I have a feeling that we'll have lots of opportunities to do that as we kind oh, sure. of taste through these. Yeah. So let's transition this to the tasting portion of of this. And I'll, I'll let you be our tour guide. I'd be really interested if, as we go through, you can give a little bit of just a little description of the distilleries as we taste them. I, I really like the uh, Brooklady versus, you know, the Kilkoman, the Kilhoman rather. I'm, I'm going to butcher these pronunciations because really, you know, you look at these like uh, Boonhaven, like uh, just to hear an actual Scottish person pronounce these distillery names and these product names is one of the great delights
0: it, it is, and it's something else that should be taken with a grain of salt. Brian Cox, who is a, uh, a very famous actor, has a series on YouTube of distillery name pronunciations. And a lot of people will go to that and try to learn how to pronounce the distilleries that way. And, and he, gets, he gets quite a few wrong. And, uh, you know, if, if, even if you watch some videos of folks doing distillery visits and you're listening to the folks at the distillery they will pronounce, Brookladdy will be pronounced differently, Lefroy, Lugavulin, et cetera. So yeah. you do you do the best you can. So let's start with Lagavolin. So yes. Lugavool, uh, we have our glasses here and they've already been poured. And so they've been sitting for about, you know, a half hour mm-hmm. or so. And so as you probably well know, when whiskey is exposed to air and it turns bad, it's oxidized. And when it's been exposed to air and it improves, it's aerated or it's opened up. Sure. And so that's uh, this uh, hopefully has opened up. So Lagavulin is a very, I think, famous distillery, and for good reason. They put out a great, great spirit. They've been around for a long time. They illicitly were on the island distilling from the beginning of the 1700s. They came online legally uh, in the beginning of the 1800s. They have mostly age-stated bottlings, which are becoming more rare these days as the non-age-stated whiskeys come to the fore. Uh, But, you know, in terms of celebrity spokespeople, Ron Swanson is a right. is a, is a big name and a big face for Lagavulin. So much so that Lagavulin did something that I thought was very bold, particularly in this day and age, where they had the 16, and then they had the annual release of the 12, which they would put out the uh, PX uh, maturation. Uh, and then... That's a Pedro Jimenez sherry cask, which is kind of like a dessert sherry. Sure, sure. Yeah. And then, the, you know, they have the Fajil releases that they'll do for the um, the, the festivals on Isla, But they put out a in 8. And that was a bold move because no one had gone below 10 for yep. quite some time for a new expression. Primarily, they would do what Artbag has done, which is to put out a series of non-age-dated, but with great names like drum or grooves or you know Dark Cove or Perpetuum or what have you So you know I have a lot of respect for for Lo from that standpoint part so you're nosing the the spirit right now and, and hopefully what you're getting is is that smoke and that ash and there's no there shouldn't be any iodine quality to it
1: I'm definitely not getting iodine but I think because this has been allowed to open up for a little while I'm getting some just massive beautiful like honey and like dried fruit notes in it okay like really like a strong like fig or prune with some with like a serious honey in the background like um sauterne honey oh okay. almost as opposed to like a just like a honeysuckle or something that like completely unexpected for me like i was kind of poising myself for the smoke and man it's yeah. still there it's still like yeah that's fascinating
0: it, it's a well constructed spirit they you know they have a slow distillation speed they put a lot of time into what they do they are owned they're one of the two distilleries owned by Diageo on Isla and so of course as, as you probably know there's been a lot of consolidation in the whiskey industry and you have a lot of big names like Remy Contro and, and 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 Diageo and others that are now owners of these distilleries that William, were William Grant & Sons William Grant & Sons etc sure and and so, you know, Diageo gets a lot of heat because they, uh, they they do things a certain way. They do a lot of heavy promotion, they focus a lot on advertising, uh, obviously, but no more so than others. Artbag, for example, goes nuts with the advertising. They have a a literal bus that comes to town and has I've a, seen it. a VR. It's insane.
1: Yeah. They yeah. they set up at Schneider's, which is my local liquor store right. not right. too long ago. And uh, I just saw that bus parked out there and I was like,
0: what is going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they go all out and they'll go to Jack Rose for their their annual release. And uh, for Dark Cove, which was themed around these old time smugglers of whiskey. They had Dram and Grain in the basement of Jack Rose set up as a smuggler's cove. Oh, nice. And then they would lead groups of tasters down to, to Dram and Grain to taste the the dark cove. So it's a little, you know, it's a little bit of schlock, but, you know, enjoyable nonetheless. Yeah, yeah yep. I
1: would be, I'd sign me up, you know. Right. I, I'm okay to be advertised to as long as it's entertaining and highly produced, yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, and the spirit is is good. That's, you know, of course, the most important thing. And so for Lagavulin, I, you know, I, I think of it as kind of one of the Isla benchmarks. You know, they, they age their whiskey on the island. All of the, you know, the warehouses are exposed to the sea. And, and for whatever that's worth, some people think it's bunk. Some people think it does impart something over many years, 16 years in this case. I believe Lagavulin 16 is mostly ex-bourbon. I don't think there's any sherry in this. I don't know if Lagavulin colors their whiskey or not. I want to say that they do with caramel. And that is another sort of controversial part of the industry where it is great to be able to look at an uncolored whiskey and be able to get some sense of was this a sherry maturation, was this a bourbon maturation, how much time did this spend in the, in the barrel, that kind of thing. And right. you can't necessarily do that when it's been colored by caramel, E-150. And I understand why distilleries do it, because people don't want to go to a store and see a different color whiskey six months after they bought a first bottle, and it was one color, and now it's a different color.
1: Right, right. Consistency across batches is a highly contentious thing. Sure. And when you segment that up into the various lines that these these distilleries have, each line right. accrues its own identity over time. Um, so with the, the caramel coloring, does that have any impact on the flavor? The
0: distilleries insist that it does not. The whiskey enthusiasts, some insist that it does, but I have yet to see a blind tasting where you put one caramel-colored whiskey against another Mm -hmm. and someone was able to be able to say, yes, this has caramel in it. Now, it may be that uh, one is, so I believe it's Avalor, maybe Avalor 12, there is a cast strength and a regular strength version of the same whiskey the same mash bill, the same ingredients, etc. Sure, one is chill filtered, one is not, and chill filtration is similar to nat to, um, to to caramel coloring in the sense that some people think that it absolutely has an impact on flavor and taste, etc. And other people insist that it doesn't. Sure, uh, but I don't know of anyone who's able to pick it out.
1: Sure, yeah, no, that's I mean, and it's always part of the conversation, you know, and and sometimes like you know when when I start thinking about or. Having a discussion about something like chill filtration, the point of which is to kind of get some of these oilier compounds out of the whiskey. Because if the bottle is sitting, then it's possible at certain temperatures, under certain proofs, I believe, right, right, for right, these right, oils 6, to kind 45. of agglomerate and they, they look cloudy, they look funky, and yeah. that's that's no bueno, right? right? Like, as somebody who produces products, right. I, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it doesn't matter if you know, it's good for the flavor. Nobody wants to see stuff floating around. So, uh, I I totally get it. I usually, I try to take it as opposed to a quality indicator as just a data point. Yeah. And maybe in the back of my head, when I'm comparing, if I take, you know, two whiskeys off my mental library and I say, oh, well this evening I enjoyed a, you know, a, a dram of this and a dram of this, this one's chill filtered. I know this one is not, huh? there's at least a valid comparison there. And I can use that in the moment to just kind of look at them a little bit more intelligently. But what I try to be careful not to do is draw like hard and fast quality indicators from that where I'm like passing judgment and be like, well that's not worth the money or this is better than this. I try and just kind of step back and just keep it as a data point.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's a good approach and it's it's one indicator among many and how transparent the distillery is about that is also important because that's that's an indicator as well. So so Lagavulin has, you know, they have their lineup now where they first started out with just the 16 and the 12 and then the higher ages. Now they have the eight, they have the nine-year-old Game of Thrones uh, re- special release, which yeah. some people are still able to get their hands on.
1: Now, was that just Isla or was that other, that was, that was all throughout this, the Scotch landscape, correct? The Game that of was Thrones?
0: Basically Diageo classic malts. So yeah. it was Obin, Dalwini, Kulela. Talisker, Lagavool, and okay. everything in Diageo's right. lineup. This is just right. another marketing gimmick of, of Diageo, but one that actually turned out great, and, and, I'll, and I'll say that for two reasons. One, because I thought that the releases were priced very well. They didn't come out and say, this is a Game of Thrones release, we're going to put it at a price point of $140 per bottle or something like that. They came in, I think, 50 to maybe $90 sure. you know, across, across the range. The other factor is... They were good. The Talisker release was... I had a sample of it. It was fantastic. I've heard great things about Dalwini, and I've heard great things about the Lagavulin release. So, um, you know, well done on their part.
1: Yeah, I cringe when I look at the bottles, but it's like, yeah, like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, but yeah, I mean, I would, you know, if a glass materialized in front of me, I certainly wouldn't turn my nose up at it. But the price point thing is really important because if, and and I, I, with the Nick Offerman slash Ron Swanson thing as well, I think that's really important. And I, I think, you know, speculating on my part, he's, he's coming at this, Nick Offerman's coming at this, he built a character that was all about Scotch. It was like part of his persona and because he has so many people who kind of hold this persona up to this, kind of put it on a pedestal, I think it was important like for him to, to kind of, I imagine he was probably like, no, we got to put this out at a good price. You know, I'm confident in your product. I love your product. I put it on TV a lot. Yeah. You know, let's let's see a, a younger version of this and, and put it at a good price point.
0: Yeah, and so you're talking about the Logavol 11, which has just been announced and uh, is everyone's excited about. Yeah, so so that's great. So now that that you've tried Logavol, let's uh, move on to I think since we talked about it, the Octamore 8.2, which I think would be a fun one, and this is from the. Brooklati distillery. Yep. And so I have another Brook Lottie here as well, the Port Charlotte. With Lagavulin, the Lagavulin 16 that we just tasted being uh, at uh, roughly 35 ppm for, for the malt ppm, this is 167, so this will give you sort of a, a little bit of an indication as to what those numbers mean, at least for these two expressions. Sure. And so I've just poured just enough to kind of, you know, nose and taste. Yeah, and totally. A, kind of get a sense of it. And as I mentioned, the Octomore line is uh, their superpeated line that has expressions of 150 or more parts per million, or the phenol parts per million. Octomore is a reference to, there's an Octomore farm on Isla where there's barley grown, uh, and it's a complement to the Port Charlotte, which is their Heavily peated line.
1: Yeah, and you'll you'll know an octomore bottle when you come across it because they're these very dif- distinctive um, kind of matte bottles. Mm-hmm. It's, they're not clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've seen a black one and like a really like robin's egg blue mm-hmm. version. I think they have a couple.
0: Yeah, the the robin's egg blue. I think that is the 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 brook lot the lottie ten, the classic lottie oh, okay. bottle. But you know it's interesting that you bring that up because the part the port charlotte line recently just got a makeover and part of that what was behind that was it i've heard the distillery folks talk about it as sort of like a middle child syndrome where the brook Lottie is kind of the namesake and so it gets a lot of attention that way octomore has the heavy cult following people love it they go nuts for the releases it's at a heavy price point but they still it still flies off the shelves port charlotte kind of got the hand-me-down clothes from the you know the older brother it had the same bottle shape as the brook so they've redone the bottle for the new port charlottes that are being released have that sort of like stout squat shoulder and it's a completely different bottle
1: yeah it's very clean very contemporary looking it looks almost like a gin (laughs) you know you look at the bottle you're like that's a gin or that's a a vodka or something like that right but it's it's really nice so you definitely get the ppm on this like you, you get that hit of smoke right up front
0: but in a, as you mentioned, in a different way than yeah. the lightable one. here. I get a little more funk on it. I get a little more... Totally funk. Yeah. I get a, a little more um, eye Now, one thing that's important to know about the Octomore series is when it is released, there's been a 6, there's been a 7, an 8. I think the 9 uh, has just been released. The point 1 refers to, I believe, Scottish barley. The point 2 is traditionally a wine finish. The point 3 is, I believe, the Isla barley and then the point four is generally kind of like a, a, uh, a virgin oak or some other kind of uh, experimental uh, okay. uh, aging
1: right because very rarely do scotch distilleries use just virgin american oak they'll usually use
0: ex filled bourbon bourbon barrels right right and but
1: now we're starting to see like that's actually yeah. a big
0: trend now right yeah yeah with the art baked kelpie and with a number of others there's been a, a lot more of that particularly with the, the octobor series with the point fours and uh, and and part of that also has to do with just the stock of barrels. You know, as as these as these big corporations buy up both bourbon distilleries as well as Scotch distilleries, they sort of uh, lock in the supply of barrels. But nevertheless, if you've seen a big production line, and they're using just such an, a ridiculous number of barrels that uh, it's becoming more appealing i think both financially as well as from an inventory standpoint to be able to revert to to new oak
1: yeah totally it's it's a good business decision if you can make a good excuse to do it and it is it's getting so competitive out there because think about you know i I would say i would i would hazard a guess that scotch especially in the united states has seen a pretty decent uptick in popularity in like the last 10 years for example Yeah. yeah well they didn't know that 10 years ago no and that's when they put like, so if you're getting a Lafroy 10, that was 10 years in a barrel. So yeah. the stuff that we're starting to taste today was maybe you know just going into a barrel when this trend started to happen. So these distillers are kind of in a pickle right now because we're gobbling all this stuff up. And they've got to find creative ways to do two things. One, source the stuff that they've always sourced so that they can make the product that they've always made and do that whole, you know, stick with the consistency thing. And then try and project forward so that they can dig themselves out of this hole somehow, which is looking less and less likely uh, just because talking about like all these uh, sherry cask finishes. And it's like people are drinking way more scotch than they're drinking sherry.
0: They, they are. And, you know, I, I think the scotch boom is, is a good thing in terms of variety and product and what the distilleries are doing. But at the same time, it also has some some negative implications. And, you know, I kind of feel like if it's Tuesday, it must be time for a new article about how Japan is running out of whiskey. And, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, I think, agita and anxiety around that. And what happens is Japan is an interesting example where what they're doing, they don't I think ha- they don't have as tight regulations as, for example, the Scotch Whiskey Association or, uh, for example, the bourbon industry in the United States. And so there are Japanese whiskies put out that have a high proportion of lower quality Scottish whiskey blended in. Yep. Which is really mind boggling because if you're buying a Japanese whiskey and you have a certain notion of how it's being made and You're thinking about that whole process and that it has a signature of the Japanese mindset and the Japanese approach to putting together a product. That's not what you're buying.
1: Right, which is, you know, that that ethos is like highly precise... And almost like they would, it's it's kind of like the the Harry Carey thing where it's like you would, the distiller would almost rather not sell you the bottle if it wasn't just up to like this incredibly high standard. But, right. But that's not the case, you know. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating set of problems. I'd love to talk more about it, but I want to get the notes on this because the nose I find is very different from what you get on the palate here. Yeah. I'm getting like some, some graham cracker on the nose.
0: Well, it's, you know, I am partial to wine finished whiskey. This is... You know, an example, of the more the pungency of the mm-hmm. nose, the finish is interesting to me in the sense that I, I, I feel like the, it hits the back of your mouth really quickly and really intensely, has about a medium finish, it sort of drops off right after that, whereas the Lagavulin 16 kind of lingered a little bit longer.
1: I definitely get a, a much more immediate, much more intense salivary response from the Octomore. You get that kind of like really intense smokiness on the palate, but I could sit and smell this all night. Like I like I yeah. want a car air freshener of this, <laughs> the nose because it's like, oh, it's got you, you, just that slight hint of funk. Like if you ever walk into a distillery when they're when they're um, when they're mashing or when they're bringing the mash into the still. You get a little bit of funk, like that little like sometimes wine people would call it barnyard or yeah. wet earth or something. Right. And yeah, I mean, essentially, peat is kind of wet earth. Oh, uh, just there's there's some that graham cracker for me is just like whoa. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I expect this on some of the more space eyed. Uh, expressions but this is well and
0: and it's a little close in the sense that uh, to the extent that there's some proximity between a wine finish and a sherry finish if you associate sherry finishes with space side right but i you know i i get and this is a note i pick up often is a little bit of a candied sort of component to it or a little taffy maybe in in the the nose and in the um like a a candied orange peel
1: or something like that in the
0: beginning of the palate
1: yeah, maybe even a little bit of banana. Like banana chip, like a banana chip or something like that cuz you get a little bit of like I'm thinking like those I love those Trader Joe banana tri- banana chips. Okay. But they they've got like a little bit of um oil like the in order to dry them they put a little oil on them so there's a little bit of yeah. like that fattiness that goes with them and I'm getting a little bit of like it's a sweetness. Yeah, there's a sweetness, there's a there's a, there's a fruit, but it's also got like a little bit of that fat in there somehow. I don't know. It's a really compelling nose, I think.
0: But everything that you're saying is starkly different from what you said about the Lagavulin. And so, you know, for me, I, I chafe is a strong word, but you'll see often people saying, well, I don't like the Islas. Islas are too strong for me. Sure. And there is no one Isla. There are many different variations, even within the distilleries, that all have different uh, compelling aspects of them.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. And I think that, so we're going to do a little reset here. Obviously, we don't have, like, you know, we're tasting through all these marks. We don't have unlimited glassware. But what I'm doing right now is I'm going to take a moment to just cleanse my palate because yeah. the Octomore is very, very uh, intense. So, like, even when you're just conducting a casual tasting like this and we're kind of going back and forth, you know, we don't have, like, tasting no cheats in front of us or the... A good little plug for the Essential Tasting Journal for spirits and cocktails, but but we are you know it's still important even though this is a less formal setting to try and remember to cleanse your palate and and, and do all that good stuff as well. It definitely makes a difference, especially when you're doing a comparative tasting.
0: It it, it certainly does. And tasting order makes a difference if you taste something in the third position as opposed to the first or the eighth we will often pick up on, on some things different. Ardbeg is a great example of that. We did, as I mentioned, a blind tasting of Ardbeg, and I came out of it thinking that Ardbeg grooves was the be-all, end-all of Ardbegs. And then I recently tried the drum in comparison to the grooves, and the drum just blew it away in terms of its intensity, in terms of what it, what, what, what layers it had on the palate. And
1: yeah, tasting order is super important. And a great example of that, I just did this past January a little bit of spirits judging for the American Distilling Institute out in Tiburon, their annual judging of craft spirits. Okay. And they had an entire—so that's a blind tasting as well. You yeah. get a little bit of information on the category. Each mark you'll get— an approximate ABV range. And then they'll tell you, you know, maybe a little bit about the aging. If it's an age spirit, they'll be like, it was aged from one to two years in new American oak or something like that. They're not going to give you like a fingerprints of it, but they'll give you some information, but the marks that you can taste could be very different. And sometimes there's just a stinker in there.
0: Yeah. These aren't yeah.
1: all great. No. That's why they're there to be judged for feedback. And so the stewards who set up the blind tastings are, that's a big part of their responsibility because you really don't want to put something super bombastic right at the beginning because that's just going to spill over and affect all the other evaluations. So uh, for folks who are listening to this, thinking, this is really freaking cool, I kind of want to do this. As you set up your tasting, consider the order. Like I think, I think that's a really valid thing. So let's, um, yeah, I've got, I I guess, should I? Well, yeah.
0: So what I've been doing is I've been pouring a little bit of water uh, and I also have this glass over here that you can use uh, to
1: kind of dump. I don't, yeah, you can give me really small pours because I'm driving and I I want to be really responsible. So yeah. So I'll just do that. And then,
0: you know, if you pour water into the Glencairn, that'll kind of rinse the glass. Right.
1: so we're doing a little bit of quality control here, and the, to the extent that you can in a home setting, and it's funny, uh, it's almost like uh, absinthe rinsing a cocktail glass. Yeah, <laughs> kind of spinning it around a little bit. But yeah, this is this has been phenomenal so far. So what do what do we
0: have next here? So I wanted to take a little detour next. I don't have a Lafroig, but I think Lafroig is is really interesting because, as I mentioned, they go a little bit deeper into the. Um, the, the four shots, they, they do a, a very long four shot run, so it means that there's less uh, estuary notes in the new make, so it's a little bit different from some of the other uh, distilleries. And a deeper cut means that the heavier phenolics are captured compared to like the Ardbag or, or the Lagavulin. But it also gives me an opportunity to kind of highlight uh, one of the sort of interesting personalities of the whiskey world. So what I have here is a Compass Box Great King Street, which is has a makeup, it's a blended whiskey, and the makeup of it is about 33% lowland grain whiskey, 20% single malt from Laphroaig, so the Laphroaig is in here, and then there's roughly uh, 47% mix of Kleinleash, some sherry uh, malt, and, and a small proportion of malts from Speyside and the Highlands. But this was a barrel pick using a French, Oaks, uh, French oak barrel, by the Whiskey Library DC and Scotch Trooper. Oh, and so cool. they collaborated on this uh, with Compass Box. And so Scotch Trooper, for folks who are on social media, know of as an individual who has sort of made a name for himself, taking some very interesting shots of Star Wars figures along with scotch bottles, and and also got into a little bit of, uh, of a controversy related to some complaints from a competitor about the influence on minors uh, from the juxtaposition of the Star Wars figures and the alcohol. So
1: that was sort of an interesting incident in the industry. Yeah, very interesting. I, I actually wasn't aware of that, but um, it's a, a fantastic social media account it's funny because if you find the right gimmick it's all i mean i'm sure that's all it just started as like a silly little gimmick and then he he kind of accrued some actual influence and and started doing some really interesting things and it's just instagram is such a good vehicle for him and so i do recommend that folks yeah follow scotch trooper and check, check out, it out show, yeah
0: check out his account sure so the other collaborators on this is a organization known as the whiskey library dc They are two individuals, Brian Thompson and and Tim Mall, uh, from the area, and they do an incredible amount to contribute to the local whiskey community here in terms of education. I'm involved in a barrel pick with them at 1 8. Uh, We're doing a 100% uh, malted uh, rye there. Uh, They've done a number of other sort of classes and other other events for folks. Uh, I think Rebellion or, or Bourbon closed. The bar just up the street from Jack Rose. They may have closed recently, but they used to do a lot of events there. Yep. And and in terms of entry points, a lot of people sort of came through one of their events first uh, in terms of getting uh, their appreciation for for whiskey. They also do you know interesting experiments. I have these out. We won't taste these. We can, uh, <laughs> but they're not ILA. And this is Lion Distilling from St. Michaels, Maryland. And what they did is they put rum and aged it in rye barrels and then took rye whiskey and aged it in the rum, in yeah. the rum barrels. And it made for a really interesting experiment. And if you taste these, if you do a side-by-side by the, with these, it, it gives you some really interesting insights into, into that part of the process.
1: Yeah, shout out to Jamie and Ben. Very, very good friends of the podcast of, of uh, Modern Bar Cart. Uh, in terms of people who are, are doing craft spirits right, can't say enough good things about Jamie and Ben over at Lion Distilling.
0: Yeah, and hard workers, too. I mean, it's, um, you know, you see it. So this is just a small pour of the Great King Street. Great. Um, this is a, So we're getting a
1: little bit of Lefroy in here. We're
0: getting is- a little bit of Lefroy, but what's also interesting about... So you see on, in terms of advertising, you see on the label, Bold, Petey, Sherried, they're advertising what's in this blended whiskey. John Glazer is an individual who I would consider of the Brian Davis ilk. He is someone who recognizes that there are rules and it's fun to see what you can do within those rules and, and there's, there's beauty and there's art in that. But let's push the envelope sometimes. Let's break the rules sometimes. And so he's done some really interesting things in terms of pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable within the, the, the SWA and with, within the Scotch world. Uh, he's had a number of expressions that have Uh, really kind of created uh, something where there wasn't something before. The Great King Street, this particular blend, there's a Glasgow blend of this and there's an Artisans blend. Uh, It's a very affordable, high quality whiskey. You can get this at Magruder's, I think Magruder's is just over the line in DC, Chevy Chase area, Uh, for people in the the DC area. You know, this is an under $50, great, great product.
1: Right, right, and that's not super common in the Scotch world, La Ten is kind of like your, you know, it's going to be around between forty-five and fifty-five dollars, depending on you know how how crazy the prices are wherever you live. But uh, yeah, you're you're not going to find a single malt too often lower than that in no. my in my experience.
0: No, the, the you know the entry level or the 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 sort of accessible price points are you know you have your Ardbeg Ten. You have your Highland Park Twelve, which I think is in the fifties right now. Kilholm and Macar Bay, I think, is a fifty-dollar bottle, which is yep. excellent. But you know, other than those, it starts to creep up. Yeah. Uh, so the Lefroy Distillery, in general, I think you know. So as I mentioned, it's one of the Kil Dalton Distilleries. So its owner is Morrison Beaumont Distillers. Their owner is Beam Suntory. So right. they have some serious backing in terms of finances and in terms of everything else. Their production is at uh, two point six million liter capacity. Mm-hmm. So they're you know, up there in terms of Cola in terms of you know having a heavy um, a heavy output. But you know I, I've always I, I like Lefroig, the Lefroy ten, the Lefroig 10 cast rank is fantastic. They put out. Uh, a couple of non-age-dated releases lately, the Select and the Lore. The Quarter Cask is also, you know, an interesting release. Uh, Simon Brooking is one of their brand ambassadors, who if you ever have an opportunity to attend a masterclass or to see him lead a tasting, he is probably the quintessential brand ambassador. He knows everything about the distillery. Uh, he sings, he dances, he tells jokes, he plays the part. It's, yeah. um, it, it's pretty phenomenal. So as you taste this, which has some peated whiskey in it, but also some other whiskeys, what are you getting off of So so
1: I'm getting... This is an incredibly balanced experience for me, uh, which you would kind of expect from a blend, right? That's kind of like one of the the assets of blending things. So if you find a blend that does not seem balanced, that might uh, affect your evaluation. But I'm getting a little bit of that grain whiskey coming through, Mm -hmm. like the non-single malt. I get a little bit of coffee on the nose, like coffee molasses like a, like a very light molasses. But then also you definitely get like, just, there's like a, I wouldn't call it a backbone because when I, when I try and explain like the architecture of a nose or a palate, usually when I call something the backbone, it's like the thing that kind of shoots across the palate or like really asserts itself from the beginning to the end of the nose. But I'm getting, it's just like, it's almost like in the background, it's almost like a moderator of yeah, the Lefroy, yeah. it's it's like sitting there watching all the other stuff. It's 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 there. It's right. not the most dominant thing, but it's like making sure everybody's like doing their shit right, yeah. kind of. Uh, yeah, it's like the detention teacher in this scenario.
0: Okay, I can I can see that I can see that. For me, it's especially coming off the Octomore and the Logovol, and the first point that I uh, realize is how. Much less pronounced it is. Mm-hmm. The nose is certainly not as aggressive as it was on the no. local hole or on no, the. No, very octomar. mild. The the palate and the finish is is also a little bit more subdued. It's it's there. Uh, mm-hmm. It's accessible. It's enjoyable. I like it, but it's not what I would call a super big personality uh, whiskey, which is not to put it down or it's not a pejorative in any way. It's just to say that this is something that might be what some folks term a daily drinker. You know, you, you yep. could enjoy this on a daily basis. One dram, you know, I I'm I get a little flack for, I, I have my dish, dishes, you know, I do the dishes every night and have a dram with the dishes oh. and there's always more dishes to be done. It's a fantastic so. move.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've done that too. I'd slap this on a large rock immediately. Yeah, I feel like this could could really transform in interesting ways if diluted slowly and chilled slightly. Oh sure, uh, I sure. think I think that a little bit more of that iodiney quality from the uh, Lafroie would kind of bleed through with a little bit of a little bit of water, and I think that some of the some of the grainy notes might might um, like kind of settle out as well. So yeah, yeah, this is really this is a really cool one, especially in comparison to the others that we tasted.
0: and And you touched on something that's also interesting, particularly for folks who really uh, are uh, compelled to experience their whiskey in a number of different ways, and that's the impact that water has on whiskey. And so what a lot of Scotch drinkers will do is they'll shy away from rocks, but they will have a pipette or a um, or a water dropper close by, they'll add a couple drops of water to a spirit, particularly when it's at maybe 50% or higher ABV. Totally. Just to open it up a little bit, and that interaction of the water with the spirit changes it somewhat. Now, the spirit already has water in it because it's been diluted off the the still, but um, it it does change it a little bit. And so that's something that, that folks will do.
1: This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, Isla Scotch Insights and some impressive drams by Adam Safir, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.